I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, please, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. In verse number 13 of Matthew 5, Jesus said, Ye are the salt of the earth. Verse number 14, he said, Ye are the light of the world. And then in verse number 16, he says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Those are statements that follow the Beatitudes. And we've spent several weeks in the past preaching about the Beatitudes. And that is Jesus telling his disciples about life in his kingdom. All of those statements in the Beatitudes are statements about Christian character. It's the qualities that Christians must possess to be a part of the kingdom of God. Uh, When Jesus follows those statements with comments about salt and life, he's telling us that when we live out those Beatitudes, we will become a light to those who are in the world. We will become salt. We will be an influence upon people. We'll be a flavoring that's much different than the people of the world have experienced with their lives. The way that we do that, the way that we are salt and light, is to live holy and righteous lives. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount that covers the rest of chapter 5, chapter 6, and verse uh, chapter 7 is a description about how Christians can live out in righteousness, live out their lives in righteousness. In our study of the Beatitudes, we looked at righteousness. We had a couple of sermons or more speaking about the righteousness that we receive through our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the righteousness of God that's given to us. But as Jesus preaches throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he's not primarily speaking about that type of righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. I mean, we all should be aware of that. There's nothing in us that would ever make us fit for heaven. There's no way that we could ever earn our way to heaven. But when we have been given the perfect righteousness of Christ by our faith in him, then we're to begin a life of doing. We're to begin a life of working out the righteousness that Christ has given. And so that means that we are to be people of mercy. That's in the Beatitudes, people of kindness and compassion and people of forgiveness. And all of that has been enabled by the grace of God. But there is this active participation that all of us must have when we become Christians. Our life is one of living out those different characteristics that we've read about. And so most of the Sermon on the Mount is talking about that type of righteousness, the type of righteousness in which we live out and do good works that God has enabled us to do. Well, in these next verses, verses 17 through 20, Jesus introduces the subject of works of righteousness that are to be done by Christians. And what he will tell us in these next verses is that all works of righteousness must be done to glorify God in heaven. Now, this is just an introduction to a Christian's work. And here what he's saying is that all of our works of righteousness, everything that we do, must be with strict adherence to God's Word. God's Word is what defines for us what Christian work is all about. So the Bible, essentially, is the explanation of paths of righteousness. David said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In other words, it's God's word that leads us in those paths of righteousness. It shows us what true righteousness is. Solomon wrote in the Proverbs, For the Lord giveth wisdom, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. 
He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. He keepeth the paths of judgment and preserveth the way of his saints. Then shalt thou understand righteousness and judgment and equity, yea, every good path. So the knowledge of right paths, the knowledge of the right way to live, comes from the word of God. Now, in these verses, Jesus says very clearly that what he came to do was to uphold the word of God. He didn't come to change it. He didn't come to lighten it for anyone. He didn't come to do away with it. He came to uphold every part of God's law down to the very minutest detail. And so in the next four sermons, we're going to discuss Jesus' attitude towards the holy word of God. What does Jesus really think about the Bible? And whatever it is that Jesus thinks about the Bible, about God's Word, we ought to think exactly the same way. And so that means that we must uphold everything that Jesus taught, and we must support every conclusion that Jesus made. Now that's the theme of these next verses, Matthew 17 through 20. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word today. As we're looking at our text verses for today, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 17, Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word today, I ask you, Lord, that you would help me to be very clear about the meaning of Jesus' statements, and may we see what he would have for us to know today about God's perfect law, about the prophets, about the Bible itself. Lord, we just ask you to give us wisdom and understanding today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. These four verses that we've just read, I I think that I would say that these are a look you in the eye, Look you straight in the eye. Don't waver. Don't back down. This is Jesus saying, read my lips and see very clearly what I think about the Word of God. Now, at this point of Jesus' ministry, it was necessary for him to preach this particular sermon. Now, God's timing is always right. And the timing is right for Jesus to preach the Sermon on the Mount. And that's because Jesus had become very troublesome for just about everybody. In the end of this sermon, in chapter 7, verses number 28 and 29, this is what we read. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So they listened to Jesus preach, and he was a very different person. Here was a man who could teach with authority. He wasn't like any of their teachers. Uh, He didn't have the same training as they had. Jesus had not been down to Jerusalem to sit under the tutelage of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus had not been to the universities. He held no doctor's degree. And yet Jesus taught so profoundly 
They looked at him, and when they listened to him teach, they, again, knew that he wasn't from their schools. And as Jesus preached to the people, he openly criticized the religious leaders. He spoke about their excesses. He he preached about their hypocrisy. And often, Jesus would denounce them in scathing words. And then the content of his preaching was very different. He didn't spend all of his time expounding the law. Now, the main teaching of that day, what the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching was the law of God, and and they uh, were very meticulous about everything that was in the law. I mean, you have to get this picture in your mind that if you believe that righteousness comes by the law, if this is the way that you can actually go to heaven by keeping a set of standards, by keeping a set of laws, if that's the way you're going to get to heaven, then you had better explore every nook and cranny of the law and know everything that it means. Because that's going to determine your righteousness. But Jesus didn't do that. As he was preaching, he wasn't looking at the finer details of the law. He wasn't making all of these discourses about how they must keep the law in all of this detail in order to be saved. Instead, Jesus did something different. He, He introduced grace into his teaching. He talked about forgiveness and he spoke of mercy. What he was speaking of was things that come from the heart and Jesus was not talking at all about this external show of religion that was so prevalent. And then as they looked at Jesus' personal life, it was much different. He didn't distance himself from sinners. He didn't follow all the rules that they had given because we see that Jesus sat down and he ate with hated tax collectors. He sat down and he spoke with the prostitutes and he spoke with the poor. He had compassion on everyone that he came in contact with. And even being such a great teacher and recognized as so, Jesus never chose the chief seats of the synagogues or the higher places so that people could look up to him in that way. Instead, Jesus always portrayed a picture of being the servant of the people. Now, that was a problem for them. I mean, it was a radical thing. It was so different. And so they just had to wonder about Jesus. What does he really think? What does he think about the Scriptures? What does he think about Moses and the prophets? Is he for them? Is he against them? Just what does Jesus really feel about the laws of God? Now, those were questions that were on the people's minds. And Jesus, who is the omniscient Son of God, could read their minds before they ever asked the questions. And so before he began to speak about the righteousness that they must work out, he stops here and he gives them an introduction and he's going to tell them very clearly what he thinks about God's Word. What does he think about the law of God? So he gives them four verses to clarify where he stands on the Holy Word of God. That's going to be the subject for four weeks as we look at these verses. So he begins in verse number 17 and he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. In that statement, Jesus declares the exaltation of the Scriptures. How does he really feel about the Word of God? Well, he says, I absolutely uphold it. I stand by it. Every word, he says, that we have here is true. And he says, I didn't come to destroy the Scriptures. I came to fulfill them. Now, we notice the way that Jesus puts this because he didn't actually say scriptures. He doesn't say the Bible. In fact, did you know that the word Bible never even appears in the Bible? The only place that you'll ever find the word Bible is on the cover of your Bible, maybe on the spine or on the front of it. Uh, The word Bible just means book. And so if you have on your Bible the words Holy Bible, that means that it's a holy book. 
Now, the word that Bible is translated from is found in the Greek New Testament, but it's not actually found in the text of the English version of Scripture. Now, that's just a little bit of trivia that you might want to put in the back of your mind, that the word Bible is never used in the Bible. But what Jesus does do, he uses this term. He says, the law or the prophets. What does he mean by the law or the prophets? Well, if you lived in Jesus' day and people use those terms, you would hear that word law and you may have different ideas about what the word law meant. Sometimes it meant that the person was referring to the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it referred to the first five books of the Bible that were written by Moses that we call the Pentateuch. But most often in Jesus' time, it referred to what Moses wrote. That would be those first five books. But it also referred to all of these thousands upon Thousands of commands that the scribes and the Pharisees had added to the Word of God. Now, Jesus, when he uses this term, certainly does not mean that. Because those things only confused and they obscured the real intent and teaching of Scripture. So whenever you see these words, law and prophets, it means the entirety of Scripture. That's what Jesus is upholding. Now, before the writing of the New Testament, uh, Jesus would be talking about those books in the Bible, those 39 books in the Old Testament, all the way from Genesis to Malachi. That's what Jesus is speaking of when he says, I'm going to uphold of that, uphold all of it. After the New Testament is written, then we're talking about all of the books from the book of Genesis clear to the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation. That's all of God's word, the law and the prophets. So what Jesus says then, referring to the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't yet been written, he said, I have come to uphold everything written from Genesis to Malachi. Now what that tells us, is that there is an inviolable word of God. There is a word that has come from God that is the standard of righteousness. It is an eternal law. It's an unchanging law. There is a holy law that's been spoken by God. And that law must be upheld. Now, it's very important for Jesus to state this. His further teachings will show us that what the scribes and the Pharisees had added to all this was not really what God had said. And so, uh, if it's not in God's law, if God didn't say it, then Jesus will not uphold it. He's not going to uphold anyone's traditions unless those traditions fit perfectly in with the Scriptures. Now, that is very important for us to recognize. Even today, and maybe I would say for us today, it is very important for us to recognize because in religion, there has been much that has been added to the Word of God that has no foundation in the Scriptures. For instance, the worship of Mary is not found in the Word of God. Praying to saints is not found in the Word of God. The infallibility of the Pope is not found in the Word of God. Those are additions. They're they're traditions that have been added to the Scriptures by men, and they have no foundation in what God says. And so Jesus will not uphold any of those things any more than he would uphold what the scribes and the Pharisees had added to the Word of God. Now, there was a great deal of argument in the time of Jesus about the law. There was debate about what you could do and what you couldn't do, uh, how many different things that you have to do to keep the law perfectly. And so they had to argue about things like the Sabbath, for instance. I mean, they had to argue about what kinds of things that you could do on the Sabbath day. What what is it that you can do and you can't do? How far can you go and not actually break the law of the Sabbath? 
And so they knew that there were certain necessities of life that have to be taken care of. There are certain things that you must do. How much can you do on the Sabbath day? And so there was argument about whether you could cook food on the Sabbath. Can you open a door on the Sabbath day? Could you reach over and pick something up? How much exertion can you really put out and it not be considered to be working on the Sabbath day? Now, as I was reading this and preparing the sermon, I found out some very strange things in in the laws of these scribes and Pharisees. For instance, if there is a, a tailor and he makes a garment and he forgets and he accidentally leaves his house and he has a pin stuck in his garment, is that work? Is he breaking the Sabbath if he does that? If a woman wears a brooch on her clothing, how heavy can that brooch be? I mean, how much is too heavy before it begins to be work and become exertion? I don't know how many of you ladies do this, but they even argued about wearing a wig. How heavy could a wig be if you wore it on the Sabbath? I mean, you could wear a wig that was too heavy, and so you had too much effort to put out to even carry your head around with you. So they were arguing about all these things. How much can you do? And you see, when you believe that righteousness comes by the law, those are the things that you have to figure out. You have to figure out, when am I breaking the law and when am I not? And as I've told you before, the Jews in Israel today even wonder about pushing a button on an elevator. Is that too much work to do on the Sabbath day? Well, all of those commands, those are external commands, and they really have nothing at all to do with the heart. Now, what the Jews thought that they were doing was elevating the standard of God's law. They added all these things to elevate it. And so what they were really doing was reducing it. They were reducing it to rules and regulations that they could keep. And so now their righteousness comes from their flesh, whatever they can do in the flesh. And so when Jesus came along and he started teaching about the law and the prophets, then the people are wondering, well, what does he really think? What does he mean by this? They're, they're under the weight, living under the weight of all of these crazy laws, and they were thinking, we sure are glad that Jesus is here, because now that he's here, he's going to lower the standards for, it, for us and make it easier for us. But Jesus came to make the standard higher. Because what he was doing was bringing the law back to its original intent. Here we're speaking of a matter of the heart. The heart has to be right with God. And there are many things that you can do, but there's nothing that you can do that can ever make your heart right. Only God is able to do that. So it's important for us to understand when Jesus says that I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, just what exactly is he speaking of? What is there in the Bible that Jesus says, I've come to fulfill? Well, we're going to look at that today. We're going to talk about, first of all, the aspects of the law. Now, the law of God is found in the Old Testament Scriptures. And again, it has nothing at all to do with the thousands of commands that the Pharisees had added. But the law in Scripture does have three different parts. We're talking about three different kinds of laws. First, there is the moral law. The moral law is what's codified in the Ten Commandments. Those are moral principles that we live by, and these are laws that are forever. They're laws that will never go out of style. In fact, those laws that we find in the Ten Commandments are actually the foundation of our government. Our laws in the United States are built upon what we find in the Ten Commandments. There we find how we are to treat our fellow man. There are laws about stealing and about murder, laws about adultery and those about greed. 
And those are things that are never going to go out of style because we have to have those kinds of laws in order to live in an ordered society. So no matter how long we live and no matter how much time passes, the Ten Commandments are never going to fade away. They're always going to be the law, the moral law that God says that we are to live by. Now in those Ten Commandments, we we find a relationship of man to man and relationship of man to God. I've already mentioned the relationship of man to man. Those are laws about adultery and laws about stealing and murder and so on. That laws about greed. But Jesus defined a, t- a part of the law, of the moral law, that was the highest of all the laws that were given. And that is the relationship that man has with God. And we remember that Jesus said the most important commandment, the greatest commandment of all is this. He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. What Jesus was doing was restating what Moses said in Deuteronomy 6, verse number 5. Moses said essentially the same thing. Now, that is never going to change. That's never going to pass away, because everything that we are is centered in God. Jesus came to fulfill that moral law. He came, and he kept every one of the Ten Commandments. But then there's another part of the law. The second part of the law is the judicial law. The judicial laws are the national laws of Israel. Now, these are the laws that identified Israel as God's chosen people. And we would call these laws of separation. These are things that Israel did that no other countries, no other nations around them did that proved or showed that they were truly the people of God. So this would include things like the type of clothing that they could wear. And as you read the Bible, it tells them, you know, which clothings that they could mix and match, what couldn't be worn together. It's sort of like your mother telling you what you put on in the morning, you know, before you leave the house. Well, God said there's certain things that you're to put on and other things you can't put on. So God gave that law that separated them from other nations. In those laws were also dietary laws. So Israel had this list of things that they could eat and they couldn't eat. Things that they could eat were called clean. Things that we couldn't eat were called unclean. Now, that wasn't like their neighbors that were around them. That separated them from them. God says, I want you to do this because I want you to be identified as somebody who is different. And so he gave those kinds of laws. So there were certain foods they stayed away from. They had to be kosher, couldn't eat pork, and you know those kinds of things. The third type of law is the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law relates to Israel's worship. These are things like the rituals that they went through, uh, things like the consecration of the items that were in the temple and the tabernacle. The ceremonial laws included the feast days that Israel celebrated. There was Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Pentecost, Feast of First Fruits, and others. And those were those types of laws that had to do with worship. Now, probably the part of that that we most recognize or most aware of is the sacrificial system. That's part of the ceremonial law. And so all throughout the history of Israel, there were thousands upon thousands of animals that were killed. In the, in the Day of Atonement, uh, one special day that Israel had, they had this, this ritual that they went through where they confessed the sins of the people on the head of a goat. And then they would send that goat out into the wilderness to go off and never be seen again. And that was a picture that God has laid the sins of his people Uh, uh, he's taken those sins and cast them as far away as they can be. 
So God had forgiven the people. That was all a sign and a symbol. That's part of the ceremonial law. Jesus said, I came to fulfill that. And when you're reading the Bible, and how many of you read the Bible through in a year? You have a reading plan. Does anybody do that? Oh, shame on you. Uh, I very regularly do that. I have a reading plan to read through the Bible every single year. And you get there to the book of Leviticus. And you start to get bogged down by all those rituals and all those laws that are there. Jesus said, I came to fulfill every single one of those. Not one of them is going to pass away until I have fulfilled it. So when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, he was upholding all of those things. He says, I'm not going to leave anything that's undone. I'm going to take care of the moral law. I'll uphold that. The judicial law, everything that's there, everything that's in the ceremonial law, Jesus said, I've come to uphold it all. So those are the aspects of the law. But we also see here that Jesus speaks about the prophets. Now, the prophets are not lawmakers. The prophets have a different function. So we talk now about the activity of the prophets. The prophets don't refer to these same books that we've talked about just now, the books of the law, the things that were given by Moses. That's not particularly the prophets, but we're speaking more about the prophetic books in the Old Testament. Now, today what we do is we divide the Old Testament into different sections, You have the first five books of Moses. That's called the Pentateuch, the books of the law. Then you have the historical books. Those would be books like Joshua and Judges and Ruth and so on. And then you have the uh, books of poetry, Job, Psalms, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, and so forth. Then you have the major prophets. That's Ezekiel and Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. And you have the minor prophets, the ones and the little bitty ones in the back of your Bible, Malachi and Haggai and Zephaniah and all of those. Those are the minor prophets. Well, when Jesus speaks of upholding what the prophets said, he's not breaking it down into those categories. But what he means is anything that a prophet said all throughout the Word of God, no matter where you find it, Jesus said, I have come to uphold that. Now, there are two very important functions of God's prophets. The first one is the prophets pronounced God's judgment. Now, if Israel had obeyed God, they wouldn't have needed this particular function of the prophets. But the prophets went to the people and they said, now, here's your problem. You haven't been keeping God's law. You've been lax. You've been lazy. You haven't done what God has said. And so they told them, now here, here's what God says to you. Trouble has fallen upon our nation because you have not kept God's law as you should. So the prophets were sent to call the people back to God. If you read the Old Testament, you find the prophets are engaged in that work over and over and over again. It was the prophets who predicted that what God's judgment would be upon Israel. The kingdom was divided. Israel was divided into two parts. They became a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the prophets prophesied that the Assyrians were going to come and carry away captive those that are in the northern kingdom of Israel. And that came true. And then you have the southern kingdom of Judah. The prophets said, prophets like Daniel said that here's what's going to happen. Uh, Babylon is going to come and they're going to overcome us. They're going to destroy the temple and destroy Jerusalem. And what you need to do, you need to get back to God. You need to believe in him. You need to practice his word. And then God will restore you to your land. Now, one of the things that the prophets did was to give the people a correct sense of what God's law meant. The prophets were there to tell them, here's what you do in order to keep God's law as you should. 
In that sense, Jesus was a prophet because this is exactly what we find him doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's explaining to the people what it is that really is God's Word. How are you going to keep God's Word? And so he's not talking at all about those traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees that superseded what God said. And so he says, we're going to go back to the law of God, and I'm going to show you how you can actually do works of righteousness. And so he pronounced judgment upon them. He said to the people, if you don't repent, you'll perish. And the prophets were constantly giving those warnings. Repent and come back to God or you will perish. Now that's one aspect of preaching today that's really gone out of style. Preachers have decided that we don't really need to call people to repentance. We don't really need to say repent or perish because we don't want to panic anybody. We don't want anybody to think that something bad could actually happen to you. So we're not going to preach that. Don't talk about repentance. We don't want to say anything like God actually will send people to hell. And so those words, repent and hell, that's no longer in the preacher's vocabulary. Now some people think that even repentance in a gospel presentation is the wrong thing to say because... God doesn't really call on anybody to repent. He just calls on people to believe. That's not the preaching of Jesus. Now, believing is enough if you understand what the Bible means by believing. To believe in the Bible sense, in the salvation sense, is to understand that there is a penalty for sin. It's to understand that your sins must be forsaken. There has to be sorrow and mourning for sin. There has to be a determination to turn away from your sin, to no longer live in it. That's exactly what Jesus taught in the Beatitudes. And he said when a person comes to the place that he mourns for his sin, when he has sorrow for sin, then what he will do, he will turn to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He'll turn to the blood of Jesus, which is the only way that he'll ever get free of those sins. And so if you don't have sorrow for your sin, if you don't repent of them, if you don't turn away from them, then Jesus is not going to deliver you from your sins. You see, you can't be a person who believes that you can trust Jesus today and then return to your sins that you did yesterday. Preachers need to preach the very same salvation that Jesus preached. They preach that there's God's way and there is no other way. To truncate the gospel message, and to say, only believe, you don't have to worry about repenting, that's to leave people believing something that will never save them from their sins. And then also the preacher is to preach about judgment. Hell is a reality. Hell is a literal burning fire that awaits anyone who rejects the message of Christ. Now that hasn't changed. That message hasn't changed because that's exactly what Jesus taught. Jesus was a prophet, and he said that the judgment of God will come upon sinners. Here's what he said in Luke chapter 12. He said, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. And then he also told them what hell was like. You know, there's some people who say that hell is annihilation, that, oh yes, there's a hellfire, but like that, you're gone. You just burn up, and that's the end of it. Then there's some people who say, well, no, hell means separation from God. Hell is just 
a place of darkness. This means you're separated from God. Well, that's bad. That's bad enough. But Jesus taught much more than that. He had a different view of hell. Listen to what he says in Matthew 13. He says, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Unless they didn't get it the first time he said it, he just came down a few more verses and said it over. He said, so shall it be at the end of the world. Verse 49, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, folks, it's hard to come to those kinds of verses in the New Testament and tell people there is no literal fire. There's no hell for you to worry about. You can't come to that and read that and say that God is not going to punish the wicked. You can't read these scriptures and say that the love of God trumps the wrath of God. And so, therefore, we don't need to worry about hell. We don't need to worry about we live how we live. We don't need to worry about faith because God's just going to let everybody by. Folks, if Jesus was a prophet, if he was the Son of God, if he was the Savior of the world, he must save us from something. And what he saves us from is the everlasting fires of hell. Now, that's the prophet's job. That's my job. And so when you come to Berean Baptist Church, this is what you'll hear. It doesn't change. Jesus exalted the Word of God. He stood by the Word of God as truth. And that's what I have to do as a preacher of the gospel of Christ. I have to stand by that same Word. And so I'm going to tell you today, it is God's way or it is no way. There is no other way to be saved but Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe in him, it's destruction and the everlasting fires of hell forever. So that's a prophet's job. That's the activity to pronounce God's judgment. But then the prophet also had another activity. And this is really the most wonderful part of his work. His job was to prophesy of God's Messiah. He was to tell them that God has provided a remedy for sin. He told them, the old-time prophets told them, somebody's coming. Somebody is coming to take away all of your sins. And they're telling the people that forgiveness can be had because God has provided a sacrifice that will take away your sins forever. Now, it's amazing when you read both the or all through the Old Testament that you find the prophets are giving two divine prophecies. One concerns the first advent of Christ, and the other concerns his second advent. Now, in that first advent, when the prophets spoke about the Messiah, they spoke of a suffering Savior. Now, there are many scriptures that we can go into the Old Testament that tell us this. Psalm chapter 22 is one of the most remarkable, because there we find that the scriptures talk about crucifixion. And crucifixion wasn't even used then. This was hundreds of years before crucifixion became a way of killing people. And yet, Psalm chapter 22 tells us that Jesus would be crucified. But I suppose that the most vivid and riveting thing that the Scripture says concerning what Jesus would do, the suffering Savior, is found in Isaiah chapter 53. I want you to turn in your Bibles there for just a moment because... I want all of us to see this. I want you to read it in your copy of God's Word. This is a familiar scripture to most of us. This was written by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus came. Now, keep Isaiah open because after we read this, we're going to return to this and 
another scripture and read in Isaiah again. But Isaiah chapter 53 speaks about the first advent of Christ and what he would do. Beginning in verse number 3, it says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Then Isaiah wrote in the 50th chapter, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Now there we find the hardest part of the prophecies of the Messiah for the people to grasp. They were overlooking this. I mean, here they had all of these animal sacrifices that were made, but they had difficulty correlating that to the Messiah who would come. So they weren't really looking for a suffering Savior. They weren't looking for a dying one. But that's exactly what Jesus had to do. He had to come to be a sacrifice for sin. And so in that first advent of Christ, that was a look back to all of those animals in the Old Testament that had been killed. The Scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That means no forgiveness of sin. And so all of those Old Testament sacrifices said something about the forgiveness of sin. But the only problem is the blood of those animals could not take away sin itself. It was only a picture of what would. And the picture, friends, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the shedding of his own blood on the cross of Calvary. So the prophets gave that message, and Jesus came to fulfill that message. And again, Jesus was a prophet because this is the very thing that he told his disciples over and over and over again. As he was preaching, he said, I'm going to have to die. The Son of Man must be lifted up. That's what he came into the world for. That was his purpose. So here he is in the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching. He's fulfilling. He's taking every step of the law so that he might fulfill it all totally. And thus he could be the sacrifice that God would make for our sins, an acceptable substitute for us. So that's what the prophets told. And again, friends, that is the subject of preaching today. That's also what I'm supposed to do. Only I tell you that the Messiah has come. He did come into the world. He did come to give his life for sin. His blood was shed. And God has provided provided a way for you, and it is the only way. You cannot ignore the cross. You cannot go around the cross and ever hope to see God or have eternal life. Jesus came to fulfill it. Then the prophets also talked about the second advent. Now, the prophecies of Christ are just marvelous beyond belief because in the Old Testament, they said that he would die. They said that he would be buried and that he would arise again. And as you know, Jesus pulled that right out of one of the minor prophets, the prophet Jonah. He said, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus died, he arose, he ascended back into heaven, 
And the prophets went on because the prophets said, He is coming back. And so they prophesied also of the second advent. Now, there are many places we could go in the Old Testament to read about that as well, but we're going to go back to Isaiah. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 63. Chapter 53 was about the first advent. In chapter 63, Isaiah prophesies the second advent. In Isaiah 63, beginning in verse number 1, it says, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury had upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. The first advent, Isaiah writes in chapter 53. Now he looks beyond it in chapter 63 to the second advent. And this, he says, is Christ's return to the earth. And he comes as a conquering king. He's no longer a suffering savior. When Jesus comes back again, he's not going to a cross. He's not going to die again. His blood is not going to be shed. But what we're reading about here is what he will do to his enemies. He comes in wrath and vengeance. He comes to take his people home. And if we read over in the book of Revelation, we see essentially the same thing that's spoken because there it says he has on his vesture and upon his thigh a name that is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, that's what Jesus came to fulfill. All that the law said that he would do, he did. All that the prophets said that he would be, he was. He came to fulfill it all. He's a prophet because he foretells of judgment. He's a priest because he gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And he's the king who comes forth to conquer. So prophet, priest, and king, all of that is found in Jesus Christ. Now, do you see why Jesus exalts the Scripture? Can you imagine why? Why is it that you go to churches all around here, go to just about any church that you want to today, and people don't even pick up the Bible anymore? People don't even read the Bible anymore. But here's what the Bible says. It's what it's all about. Jesus came to uphold, to exalt the Scripture because it speaks of Him. It speaks of the only way of eternal life. It must come through Him. So Jesus is the one who is the keeper of the moral law. He's the one who keeps all the judicial law. He upholds all of that. He is the sacrifice that's in the ceremonial law. Jesus upholds it all. And he says, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I come not to destroy, but to fulfill. What you need to understand is that God's word is forever. It speaks of God's way and no other way. Jesus didn't come to destroy it. He came to preach the way, God's way of eternal life. So what do you think of God's way? What do you think of God's word? Jesus is the living word. That's what the scripture says. And Jesus is also God's way. He exalted 
the scriptures. And we exalt him in the scriptures. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We exalt the word of God today because we know that it speaks of you. Never would we want to be guilty of laying the word of God aside, of saying that it's not important for us, that it's passed away, that it's no longer relevant. It is absolutely relevant to every person in this room today because it speaks of the only way that a person can have eternal life. That comes through Jesus Christ who fulfilled all Scripture. Lord, I just pray that you'd speak to someone's heart today. If they need to talk about salvation or baptism or church membership, need to pray with someone, something going on in their life, I just pray, Lord, that you would move them to their men in the back of the auditorium who will help them discuss these different things and needs that are in their life. Bless in this invitation as we sing. And Lord, just be with us and help us to exalt the name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand.